I want to start off by giving you a very stark metaphor that the Buddha uses. And then I'll pick it up later on. I just want to kind of impress this on your mind to start with. And then I'll go on to pick up some themes from last night and uh, some areas that have come up in discussions today in some of the groups. The metaphor is this. The Buddha says, everything is burning. The whole world is burning. And they're burning with the flames of greed, hatred and delusion. In many ways, the whole practice of Buddhist meditation is about the quenching of the flames of greed, hatred and delusion. And I'll pick that up as we go through the evening, uh, through this particular talk. Because it's very, very important, because the whole task of Buddhist meditation, be it samatha, vipassana or um, metta meditation, cultivation, is all about the quenching of those flames. It's all about the movement away from these three radical unwholesome roots which give rise, in a sense, to all of our negative psychology. Everything that is negative within the mind is traceable back to those roots of greed, hatred and delusion. Everything positive in the mind is traceable to the opposites, the complete antitheses of those, to the roots of generosity, friendliness, kindness, compassion, and also understanding or insight into the way things are. All of the practices, as I say, are tied to the overcoming of those three radical roots and the development of the three wholesome roots. So what we're talking about is a radical transformation of mind. Uh, a way, a movement away from the mind of the everyday, which is often filled quite a lot with greed, hatred and delusion. Remember what the Buddha is saying, everything is burning with them. We've only got to look around the world to see that. Um, I often joke about this and saying it's not really much use watching the soap operas because you've only got to close your eyes and see it all there. All the greed, hatred and delusion anyway. It's all going on before one's own mind. So the practices themselves are tied to this radical transformation. The radical transformation of a world when it is permeated by greed, hatred and delusion that is permeated by dukkha. And I know many, many of you will have heard me speak about this before and be familiar with this term dukkha, but it really is worth exploring it because this is the problem. Um, again, using the words of the Buddha, the Buddha says, I only teach two things. Um, makes it very simple, doesn't it, that way? I only teach two things. I teach dukkha and its overcoming. That is all. Um, in other words, he's saying, really, if you want to know about anything else, go and ask somebody else, <laughs> because I only teach these two things. <coughs> Effectively, he's saying you've got a problem. And the problem is the problem of dukkha. Um, this word, I gave you a kind of brief etymology of it last night, um, literally means the dirty place or a dirty space to be in. More specifically, it refers to all of the states of unsatisfactoriness that arise in our daily life. Everything that we find unsatisfactory. 
almost it's like the warp and woof of life that's there as the background to most of our experience. Not entirely. The Buddhist tradition is not that negative. Uh, not entirely. We do have pleasant, pleasant things. Um, we do have pleasure. But there's a worm in the apple. It's called impermanence. They don't last. Um, they arise and they disappear. And actually, you usually find that you're enjoying yourself just at the moment it's disappearing. Um, that's often um, part of the experience of dukkha. So dukkha covers everything. I could give you a great litany of terms um, which is covered by dukkha. It's from the basic, the basic state of dissatisfaction with the way things are to fear, anxiety, out-and-out suffering and tragedy. Really everything that we would consider to be the totality of unsatisfactory experience. From the minutest detail, which actually is the most common experience for us, to the great tragedies that happen in our lives and the existential tragedies which unfortunately we can't avoid losing those we love often getting sick getting ill ourselves and of course eventually mortality and death these are the things we cannot avoid so dukkha really covers that vast spectrum of things but dukkha is also not something which is actually there within the experience. It's something we add to experience. Basically, dukkha is a mental additive that we have. We bring it to whatever the experience is. And in fact, again, joking about it, we can make dukkha out of anything. You know, um, we can take any experience and we can dukkha it <laughs> and, and turn it into something unpleasant. <coughs> the unpleasantness is the mental additive we bring to it. Of course, the Buddhist tradition would be extremely unrealistic if it thought, for example, that we could overcome pain, we could overcome illness, that we could overcome death. Um, It's not that unrealistic. What it's saying is we can overcome the dukkha, the pain, the dissatisfaction, the unsatisfactoriness, which is associated with those existential states. Um, We don't have to experience them as being painful as being unsatisfactory at all. In fact, there is um, a little sutta in the Pali Canon, which some of you may know, it's called the Sutta of the Stone Splinter, where the Buddha is walking along the road and he treads on a shard of stone, for some particular reason which I won't go into, but he treads on a shard of stone. He's barefoot, of course, as many people would have been in those days, and it penetrates his foot. And it says he experiences immense pain but no dukkha showing very much that dukkha is something we add to our experience. So the question becomes for us, how do you like life? Do you like it with or without additives? (laughs) Because this is the additive that we add to most of experience, um, the dukkha that we bring to things. And actually for most of us, until perhaps sometimes even late in life, that the dukkha that we experience is not actually out-and-out tragedy. It's often more akin to something like not getting the chocolate out of the box that we wanted because somebody else has eaten it. It's more akin to that sort of experience than to great tragedy. In other words, not quite getting what you want. And actually, this is one of the great spurs often to people coming to things like meditation. I don't say it's necessarily the case with yourselves. There's often one of the great spurs is this sense of something isn't quite right. 
life isn't quite giving me what I want, even if I have quite a lot. And there is a fundamental misconception that goes on, I think, particularly in the Western world, in our search for happiness, is that we invest the very things which can't deliver it um, with the possibility of delivering it to us, um, and particularly the materiality. So there's a great confusion that often goes on between two fundamental verbs, to have and to be. Um, And if any of you have learnt another language, you will know that those are the two verbs you usually learn first, to have and to be. Uh, Most of our being in the West, because we live in a very heavily materialistic culture, not to say that the East isn't becoming that way now as well, but we live in a very heavily materialistic culture, becomes associated with we are what we have rather than the just are. In other words, just being, as opposed to having. This is a great source of often unrealized dukkha, that we still, in a sense, a bit like the the rat on the wheel, are still in pursuit of something, even though every time we get what we so-called want, it doesn't deliver what it's expected to deliver, which is some degree of contentment, peace, happiness. I find many, personally, I find many of these words very flabby, um, but I think we all know what we mean by them, actually, when we talk about happiness and peace and contentment, some quietness, some satisfaction in life. Certainly, I think we all have an inkling of what those are about. So the very things that we expect to deliver for us don't deliver at all. In fact, the, the wanting, the having, becomes habitual. It becomes conditioned. In fact, that's our chief mode of pursuit of happiness and contentment, or whatever you want to call it, is through the mode of having and acquisition and wanting more. Um, and everything around us is bespeaking of telling us how much we would be fulfilled if only we had something, uh, until the latest model comes out, anyway. Um, when they'll be selling that to you as well. So we're being, in a sense, sold by our culture, but also part of our own conditioning of being within that culture is to, in a sense, place a great deal of investment in thinking that acquisition and having is going to create happiness for us. Now, one thing I mentioned last night was the movement actually is away from this movement of looking externally for happiness, to, in a sense, starting to make the movement within, and that movement is within being, as opposed to the having and the acquisition. It's only, in a sense, this movement of mind, this transformation of mind, that is going to affect the movement toward (coughs) what we might call happiness, towards some degree of stability. Some even perhaps just degree of calmness of mind. Um, As you can see, the mind that's constantly wanting, constantly craving, is a mind that's constantly agitated. One of the great um, discoveries that the Buddha made, in a sense, was the most immediate, most proximate cause of our dukkering in this world, because it's a mode of being in itself, um, one which we're deeply attached to, actually, Um, We we can even create senses of identity in the ways that we suffer. Um, 
and we can build them into our lives. That's the way I am. That's the sort of person I am. Um, almost with the implication that we can't possibly let go. We can't possibly be different. But the Buddha identifies as the most proximate cause, the absolute um, immediate cause of this dukkering in the world as being craving. Um, really translate that in a sense in modern terms in endless desire. Desire that by its very nature can't be quenched. Um, it has no terminal point at all. Um, in other words, the desire for possessions, the desire for acquisition in whatever way that acquisition might express itself. And the acquisition, obviously, in our culture is mostly through goods and things, but it can also be through the pursuit of things like knowledge as well, learning a lot, understanding a lot. I see this often in the world of Buddhism. People understand a lot, of Buddha, a lot about Buddhism and acquire more and more knowledge about it, but don't practice it at all. Um, and so we can go down that route thinking we're getting somewhere by simply acquiring lots and lots of information. We live in an information technology age where we think that information is understanding, and it isn't. It's just information, that is all. So there's many, many modes of expression of this, but the one thing that characterizes this craving, this desire, is that it lacks any terminal point. It has, it's endless. It's an endless stream of wanting. An endless stream. And most of us have probably experienced it at some point in our life when you get the most desired object that you want, that you've perhaps even strived and saved for. How long does the happiness last that it gives you before you're on to the next thing, before you're on to the next mode of wanting, the next mode of you know, feeling dissatisfied with what you've got? I've got this wonderful thing, but it's not quite the right colour or whatever it is. There's always some dissatisfaction that then makes you strive for something else. But this is an endless stream. Um, this endless stream of desire. The mind which is tied to that, and this is really an expression of that root, greed, of wanting and wanting and wanting and wanting and having no terminal point, that mind is an agitated mind. It's a mind which isn't settled and calm, but is constantly striving to acquire in whatever way or whatever mode of expression that acquisition takes. So we have this most immediate cause for our dukkering in the world, and we compound it, unfortunately, um, this habitual tendency, uh, by clinging as well. Um, even when we've got the thing and we don't like it anymore, we still cling to it. Yeah. And, and probably, I see knowing smiles, if some of you have had this experience, of actually clinging to something you don't really want anymore. And it's simply become a hindrance. Um, and we often do that. We cling to all sorts of things. We cling to possessions and relationships and that, which are in some ways are often deleterious, actually are affecting us a lot they are making us unhappy we live a life of unhappiness through clinging to them and in fact we're entrapped often by these things very commonly often when I'm giving these talks in this room and many of you will have heard me give this example before who've heard me speak before um, I compare this craving clinging complex to something they use in Africa to trap monkeys um, 
And what they do in Africa to trap monkeys is they have something like a bowl with a long neck on it, and the long neck is just about enough for the monkey to put its hand in to get whatever is at the bottom, usually a piece of food or something like that. And what happens is the monkey grasps what's at the bottom of the bowl, and as long as he holds on, or he, she, it holds on to whatever is at the bottom of the bowl, they can't retract their hand. So they're actually trapped by their own hand. Nothing else. All it has to do to get away is drop it. That's all. You and I are monkeys <laughs> in that sense. We're trapped by that which we won't let go of. And we're particularly trapped um, by something which has a technical name. I said I wasn't going to bombard you, and I'm not. But there's one very technical name, and these are called Sankaras, habit formations, which we're entrapped by. Ways of thinking, dispositions, propensities to behave in certain ways, propensities to act in certain ways, which are entrapping. Well, obviously, one of those that I've mentioned is the desire for acquisition, thinking that things are going to make us happy, thinking that things, or even sometimes relationships, are going to make us happy. The other, you know, what a death knell for a relationship. Make me happy. <laughs> Give me happiness. Um, as you can see, it's almost bound to failure, set up in that way. So this desire is endless, it's streaming out from us, and we cling and we're trapped by that which we have, and we're particularly trapped by the habit formations that we set up. Uh, in a short weekend, by the way, like this, I tend to think that perhaps um, one of the briefest insights or one of the major insights that you come across is habit patterns. You know, habits and dispositions and ways of thinking which start to come up and you suddenly find that because you keep drifting off into them um, because you get a chance to examine them. Don't worry if that is happening because that's, in a sense, a very important insight that you're having. Um, it gets better <laughs> over time. But in, in a very brief period, a very brief period like this, which is really only you know, not quite full two days, then really all you're accessing is some of the problems, not even beginning to solve them at this stage, beginning to quieten the mind. So we have a glimpse into the dispositions, the habit patterns that make us up, and we're trapped by those habit patterns. We're trapped by ways of thinking and ways of behaving. Ways of relating to who we think we are. Um, and that way of thinking of who we are is often fantastical. And I mean that in the sense it's a fantasy life that we live. That has very little bearing and little, very little relationship to what is actually going on. And I come back to something I said last night, which is that the Buddha is an awakened one. For me, that was always a great inspiration. Um, I don't know how it sounds to yourselves, but... When I first heard that, and got away from the idea of the Buddha being enlightened, which never quite made sense until I learnt the original languages and found out the word Buddha and Bodhi, which are the two related terms, actually mean to awake or to be awakened. Yeah. It was a very great challenge because it was, as I said last night, it was the challenge of being, in a sense, told that one was mostly stumbling blindly and half awake through this world. Well, actually not even half awake <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, 
sometimes fully somnambulistic, and in some senses it's all sleepwalking through this world, um, not being awake at all. And so that was always a great challenge to me, that the whole process was one of waking up to our actual condition. And actually, even in the initial stages of summertime meditation, what you're actually waking up to is often the unquiet mind. You know? In a way, it's, it's a bit set up for failure, isn't it? You know, I say to you, come on a course um, on calming the mind, and the first thing you discover is you haven't got one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of sure somebody could do me under the Trade Descriptions Act on that one, but never mind. <coughs> so, it's part of the insight that we're discovering through the attempt to focus and concentrate the mind is that unquiet mind, that mind which is constantly grasping, constantly often looking for something external to satisfy it, for externalization in terms of that which is going to make me happy. We discover these propensities of thought, um, subtle ways of clinging, for example, to elements such as permanence. Now, I said to you, and I've said even in the groups today, that actually one of the fundamental teachings, one that um, is easy, so, so easy, and I do emphasise this, is so easy to grasp intellectually. You know, it doesn't take a great brain, it doesn't take a great mind to perhaps assent to the proposition that everything is changing that uh, nothing remains the same. Over vast periods of time, um, even the most ancient of human edifices which we've erected start to crumble. In fact, the whole of the conservation industry is there to try and shore up the ravages of time. Um, The natural world changes. The forest goes to desert, desert goes to forest, the Himalaya continue to rise, for example, as the Indian subcontinent bashes into the rest of the uh, continent. You know, so nothing remains the same. And it's a proposition which I say we can easily assent to. Yet, how few of us can live it? How few of us can live that sense of impermanence? Without, and I often say this, without referring to the tragedies, we see it written into the small things in life that we can't live it. You know, let alone the bereavements and the tragedies that happen as an inevitable course of our lives. We find it written into the minutiae of our ordinary lives when, for example, we get extremely upset by something we lose or something gets broken. Yeah. Yeah. I believe that everything is impermanence. Who broke my pen? You know, it's kind of almost that attitude. Again, I'm making, a, like, making sort of fun of it um, to, to push a point across, which is the point that we find it very, very difficult to live that permanence, impermanence. Because we actually, in a way, still believe that there is something permanent that we can grasp to, something to make our lives secure. Actually, that craving for security through possessions, through even the possession of another not in the real relationship, but through the possession of another, which often is what is equated for love, is a searching for something permanent in one's life, something that we can found ourselves on, which is unshakable and immutable. The sad news, of course, if we live under that delusion, and it is a delusion, going back to the greed, hatred and delusion, if we live under that delusion of something permanent, 
then we're going to be sorely mistaken. No matter how much we attempt to shore our lives up or close our lives down um, and close our experience down because inevitably it's going to erupt into your life at some point in time. Impermanence. It's not something you can stave off forever. In fact, it's not something you can stave off at all. And think about, and I just want to throw this open in a way, for you to think about. Think about the way, in fact, to affect any fantasy of permanence that you are going to have to restrict your life. You're going to have to close it down, affect closure on it. And even if you do manage to do that, stave it off, as I say, for a certain period of time, it's still like having built your house without foundations, because there are no foundations. It's built on shifting sand. The sand will inevitably shift and the walls will fall down. And then you're left open and exposed again to the winds of impermanence. So impermanence is there. It's written into life. Unfortunately, part of the delusory aspect that we suffer from, part of the agitation of mind that we often suffer from, is, in a sense, in the back of our minds, knowing that there is impermanence, but still grasping after permanence. Knowing that impermanence is actually the main characteristic because if I did a quick survey, I'm sure most of you would assent to the idea of impermanence, but still find it very difficult to relinquish much within your life because you think it's permanent. Even the subtle sense of ourselves in terms of identities, who we think we are, is a craving for even ourselves to be permanent in some way or another. that there is something about me that is immutable, is the same. Um, Just think about that uh, a second. If that were the case, change wouldn't be possible. If you had an eternal essence that was an unchanging essence, then that would be you forever. We could go home now, actually, if that was the case. Um, Because change wouldn't be possible. So we cling after permanence when the world is really speaking one language which is the language of impermanence constantly we try to shore up our lives through avoiding being and moving towards having because it's easier Um, we can often even in the practice of Buddhism um, read a lot of books about meditation without ever doing them Um, because actually it's easier to read about it than do it Um, Because you're going to be confronted with difficulty. Um, You're going to be confronted, actually, with certain hindrances, blockages, obstacles. Traditionally, they're known as hindrances. Um, The first one is very easy, because it's one we recognize. It's tied to a lot of our normal behavior, actually, which is the craving for sensuality, craving for sensual pleasure. We all like nice things, goodies. Um, in terms of meditation practice, is often associated with wanting nice thoughts to arise, craving those pleasant thoughts that one can attach oneself to. On its opposite, then, we have aversion, ill will, um, that can distinctly arise. You're pushing the stuff away that you don't like about yourself, trying to avoid it, repressing it. So on the one hand, we have craving and grasping after the pleasant. 
after something which perhaps is sensual. On the other hand, we have the rejection and pushing away of that which we find unpleasant. And actually, that covers a tremendous range of our behavior, both meditatively and obviously in daily life. But we're engaged in this kind of push-pull reaction, moving towards that which we like and we consider to be sensual and we want and we want to possess through desire and trying to move away from that which is considered to be unpleasant. Actually, the content of craving, by the way, um, that I mentioned already as being the most immediate cause, the Buddha also identifies that content of that craving as being probably more about craving to avoid that which you don't want as about craving for that which you want. Um, Even in Freud, you have um, something called the pleasure principle, some of you might have heard, which is actually about the avoidance of pain more than pleasure. Um, And so it's very similar to this notion of the pleasure principle that actually the craving, and a vast bulk of the craving that we have is the craving to avoid certain things, to avoid painful situations, to avoid the painful situations often that arise in meditation in terms of the mind. Which leads me immediately on to the third hindrance. Uh, one of our ways of avoidance, which we touched on again last night in response to a question, was the dynamic duo of sloth and torpor. Of sleepiness and drowsiness. Let's put it in modern English. Sloth and talk was really old fashioned English. (coughs) Excuse me. But it's that (coughs) sleepiness and drowsiness that comes over as as often a way of avoiding the difficult, avoiding the unpleasant. And again, we see this characterized in ordinary life, don't we? We can fall asleep when life becomes difficult. Just so we can fall asleep in meditation when the meditation becomes difficult because I want to avoid it. I want to get away from it. On the other hand, there is the fourth of the um, hindrances. I'm only going through these very, very briefly, just touching on to kind of make you aware that probably you're experiencing these hindrances um, often in the meditation practice in a day like today. Um, The fourth of these hindrances is really excitement and depression. They come as a duo as well. Um, excitement is being terribly enthusiastic about doing your practice until you don't get what you want <laughs> you know, we're used to having what we want so often you know, for example I've given you the promissory note of calm <laughs> for this weekend it's, it's a calming meditation weekend so folks are going to get some calm well actually you probably won't um, you might touch elements of it see it, glimpse it taste it just for brief seconds occasionally but a lot of the time what you'll discover of course is the turmoil of mind because that actually at this moment in time is the reality of what is happening you'll touch that turmoil, you'll see it you might be able to bring yourself back to having some degree of focus for a few minutes, a few seconds even wherein you touch an element of calm you've created the conditions for calm to come upon you However, most of the time it won't be like that. So we go into the practice all excited, thinking we're going to get calm. And when your ideal isn't fulfilled, what happens? You get depressed. You swing to the other. It's like bipolar disorder that we suffer from. You you get terribly, terribly excited until what we are aiming at isn't immediately fulfilled. And remember something I mentioned last night, 
we in the West are not very good at knocking in perfection straight away. We think we should get it. Um, we pay our money, we come on the meditation courses. Um, we also invest time, too, and we expect something immediately to arise out of it. Um, unfortunately, meditation, or the path of cultivation, perhaps as I should more correctly put it, the path of cultivation is not as easy as that. It takes time and it takes one virtue, um, which, again, I could expand a whole evening on, which is patience as well. It's learning. In fact, in Mahayana Buddhism, in the Great Vehicle of Buddhism, one of the paramitas, one of the perfections, is the perfection of patience, the perfection of forbearance. Here, that you have to develop to be on the path to Buddhahood. It's necessary in every element of life because actually one of the things that we're dealing with is over-idealization. So we're, when we're in these polar oppositions of moving between excitement and depression and depression and excitement, you know, because they will go up and down, then it's often because we have the over-investment in an ideal which we're aiming at. And as I say, in a way, we set ourselves up slightly for failure by talking about calm and insight and metta. And actually, in the very beginning, you don't have calm, you don't have metta, and you don't have insight, or you get very brief glimpses of them <coughs> in the initial stages. What you do get is an awful lot of revelation about what is actually going on in the mind. And in a way, that is the greatest insight you could have as a beginner, anybody who's beginning or even been practicing for quite a while, is to actually have an, a direct look into the nature of the mind which is that phrase I used last night, which is basically monkey-like, jumping around. This is the one that's not trapped, by the way. Um, it's leaping around all over the place, from thing to thing, from subject to subject, from object to object, from thought process to thought process. So that mind isn't quiet. It isn't still. Now, in our search and drive for the ideal of patience, we often try too hard as well. Remember what I was saying, as I've said throughout the day, when you try too hard, you get tense. You might even end up with a physical headache as a result of it. Because we're striving after an ideal, trying too hard. In a way, I think perhaps we have to, in cultivation practice, move much more towards a model of it coming to us. And it's not entirely a Buddhist model, but it's one, I think, that works in relationship to Buddhist practice, which is a model of grace. It comes to us as much as anything else. If you create the right ground, the right causes, the right conditions, insight will arise, metta will arise, and also calm will arise. Um, it perhaps, and the reason why I use this model is, is to get us away from the model of striving, you know, it gets very competitive. We're very good in the West at competition. You know, I've uh, used to dwell a lot around Tibetan Buddhist circles for many, many years um, and saw people in competition about how many prostrations they'd done. <laughs> and this was supposed to be a purification practice. <laughs> you know, to clear the mind, to prepare it for other things. <coughs> and it used to be, how many have you done today? So we very easily slip into competition. <coughs> so in moving towards this model, perhaps a more of a model of grace, of creating the conditions for something to come to us, is moving away from this kind of competitive model that we can easily move into. Because it's, again, part of our conditioning. Competition is part of our conditioning. Also, 
it's a movement away from ideals, which is part of the <coughs> depression excitement complex that we have. Because um, when we have an ideal about something, we often don't see actually what is occurring at all. So I want calm. My mind is firmly fixed on the idea of calm. I'm not getting it. Um, and in not getting it, there is that elation and depression. But there's also something else. There's often an ignoring of the what is actually happening. The actual what is going on at this moment. And if there is anything about samatha practice that is really absolutely crucial, it's about bringing us into this moment with the what is actually going on. It's actually true of any Buddhist practice, but it's particularly true of samatha practice. Bringing us into this moment into this full awareness of the what is going on, replete with difficulty. Not with simplistic ideas of suddenly I'm going to get calm. Suddenly I'm going to have these blinding insights. That's not to say it can't happen. In most cases it doesn't happen though. So what we are left with is what is actually going on. Coming back to the practices which we've done today, I've kept saying to you to note the content of what is going on. When you've drifted away, don't just pull yourself back. Don't just brutalise your mind, which is something, again, I mentioned last night. Don't just brutalise your mind by yanking it back as quickly as possible to the object. Take some time just to be with what is happening, to acknowledge it, to have full acknowledgement of what is going on. Not with a desire to cling to it, to pursue it down any further route of exploration or analysis or anything of that sort but also not to reject it so full acknowledgement means not clinging and not rejecting but seeing what is there and then once you've done that to gently bring yourself back to the object of meditation so the path itself becomes a gentle exploration the Buddha really didn't outline what I would call a a route march to awakening where you kind of pound your way along the path in some sort of boot camp fashion uh, to get to awakening. This is not what he outlined. What he outlined very much was a gentle path, a way of treating ourselves respectfully and therefore then treating others respectfully as well, through understanding the nature of our minds, thereby having, in a sense, an understanding of the natures of others' minds. Not direct insight into them, but often knowing that what's going on in myself is very similar to what is going on in another in that respectfulness, in that respectfulness towards our own fallibility, knowing that often, for example, that on a day we might go out with the best of intentions, uh, by the time we've reached the street corner, they've gone. <laughs> they've dissipated in irritation and rage and frustration and all the kind of dukering that we can be involved in, again. So it's about the process of gradually seeing, gradually seeing, gradually seeing and relinquishing, letting go. Freeing ourselves from this, the, the monkey trap. Um, the movement actually, the way I describe it, um, and I can only very briefly describe it, given the amount of time we have, is the movement from reactivity to activity. Because most of what passes for what we think is action is in fact reaction. It's not actual activity. It is actually simply stimulus and response. That is all. 
Um, in fact, most of the Western world, in terms of advertising, works on this. Yeah. It will try and stimulate your appetite by telling you you'll be a fulfilled and happy person if you have this. Um, and in a lot of cases, we might look through the gross parts of the advertising but not see the subtle messages. Well, the messages of fulfillment, of ego aggrandizement, and all sorts of elements that we don't so readily pick up on when we see the gross elements and we see through them. And so, in a sense, we buy into that. And what it is is a stimulus response mechanism. It's basically trying to get you to react to something. Yeah. I often liken as sometimes slightly incorrectly, because I warp the model a bit for my own benefit here. It's likened as to Pavlov's dogs, because that is what we are. You remember Pavlov's dogs? The experiment with Pavlov's dogs was to you know, ring a bell initially, and each time the bell was rung, the dog would be given a piece of food. Um, in the end was to ring the bell, the dog salivated, but you didn't give it any food. Yeah. And so it was showing a kind of psychological mechanism that we were involved, that, that you know, beings like ourselves, with our same kind of reactions, are involved in. This is, in a sense, a very good model for a lot of what's going on um, for ourselves because, actually, it's a stimulus-response mechanism. Here we are, confronted by the object of desire, and there we are salivating for it, even if we can't get it. This also is, in a sense, partly with our avoidance as well, that we're often avoiding that. We're craving to avoid the things that we don't want. Um, to move away from them. So, if you can see that, if you can begin to see that operative in the mind, this stimulus and response, you know, how somebody, for example, can stimulate you into anger. And particularly, actually, people who know you are very good at this. You know, they can press the right buttons and get you going quite easily because they know you so well. And then you find yourself in the mode of the behaviour, you know, without, in some senses, often knowing where it comes from. You just find yourself doing it. You find yourself getting irritated, getting angry, whatever the, <coughs> whatever the negative emotion is. Now, I've set it up in a particular way, I hope you're hearing it in a particular way, which is there is not a lot of freedom in that at all. You know, when there is conditioning of that sort, which is stimulus-reaction <coughs> conditioning, uh, and actually a lot of our behaviour because it is deeply embedded in our psyches, is of that stimulus-response basis, that sort of model. In other words, in in a sense, um, we are hopelessly captured by our modes of conditioning, which propel us into forms of behaviour, which often surprise ourselves. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. I know I have more than once where I said, where on earth did that come from? Why did I say that? And and actually what you're encountering is deep levels of conditioning, which just make you react in certain ways. So the whole process of this gentle path, which I've been just very briefly outlining to you a little of, is about freeing ourselves into the possibility of actually acting, not reacting. Instead of, when confronted by the situation which normally evokes, I'm just using this as an example, evokes anger or irritation, 
that you can perhaps bring something to that that's different. You can see it and act as opposed to be just stimulated, prodded into reacting. Now, in a way, that process, that way of freeing ourselves only comes about by acquaintance, by actual acquaintance with the what is going on. So, be it metta bhavana, the cultivation of metta, <coughs> samatha bhavana, or vipassana bhavana, be it any of these forms of meditation, do not ignore what is going on. Because actually, that is a lot of the learning process. We're touching base, we're getting calm, we're perhaps letting calmness come upon us, but we're also having a great deal of insight into what is actually going on in our minds. So actually, the touching the breath, touching the counting, if you're doing that, becomes a way of just touching base. Keep touching base. Keep touching base. In that process, there is a slowing down. A slowing down of the mechanism of thought. Thought will not cease entirely. It just gets slower and slower and slower. And of course, in the slowing down process, you get a chance to observe it a lot more, to see what is going on. So please do not ignore what is going on, because actually that is your greatest learning opportunity. Because in the slowing down, you get a chance to see, acknowledge, and let go. You cannot, as I've said to a number of groups today, and I might have even used the phrase last night, you cannot let go of what you don't know and don't see. You cannot begin to relinquish it. And if we're not relinquishing, not seeing, then we're trapped in habit patterns. We're trapped, and in a way, and to a degree, determined by those habit patterns. But of course, those habit patterns are not an end. They're constantly being reformed, reconstituted in relationship to the world. There's actually one very good word that actually covers a lot of our activities in the world. It's a very Buddhist word. It's actually a very Indian word. It's the word karma, which means action. That's all. Action with consequences. So we act in a world. We can't not act in a world. Um, And when we act blindly, then we set up certain consequences. Consequences will come to us um, which in some senses are part of the unconscious intentions which are often governing those actions. They might be desire, they might be craving, attachment, and all of the sometimes unacknowledged, unconscious intentions which are often behind those actions. And therefore we end up with consequences that we never intended, you know, not consciously anyway. So karma is the recognition that we can't be in the world without acting. And we act in thought, word, and deed. Now, karma is simply that. It is simply action. So don't get metaphysical about it. It's simply action which is going to produce certain consequences. So it's, in a sense, incumbent on us, if we really are, in a way, I'm putting this very grossly, if we're trying to clean up our act a little in the world to become a little bit more clear and perspicuous about what is going on, to have some perspicacity about what is actually happening, (coughs) then it makes 
it's, it's incumbent upon us really to become as clear as we can about the actions that we're involved in and the possible intentions that we have behind certain actions, both the thought, word and deed. That can only come again, about, again, can come about again, I should say, by slowing down the mind, by beginning to see what is actually occurring. Otherwise, and I'm going to finish here, otherwise if we don't do that, if we don't engage in this, we don't slow the mind, the mind down, we don't get a degree of calm that reflects what is actually happening, then we are constantly being pulled into the flames of the world that is burning constantly acting solely out of greed, hatred and delusion. I suspect, you know, for people like yourselves to be in this situation, that's not how we want to act. And so it really behoves us to actually look at what is going on, not to ignore any facet of our experience, to really be within that experience. And there's something I want to say about this, because no matter what the difficulty is in terms of your experience, and it's worth bearing in mind because it goes with the teaching of impermanence as well, that this moment, this very moment that you are in, the present moment, the moments in your meditation practice when things are difficult often, are unique and they're unrepeatable. They will never come back again. Because that is the stream of life. They arise and they pass away, never to be repeated in exactly the same way. Yet, we can so easily wipe out whole portions of our life uh, by saying things like, can't wait to get to the holidays. When life is difficult, when the meditation is difficult, can't wait to get to the end of the session, (laughs) because it's difficult. Yet, what that difficulty you're experiencing, despite its difficulty, is unique and it's about being and it's about understanding where you are what you're doing because you can actually only start from that position of understanding where you are this is not the importation of idealistic categories it's the realisation of who and where you are at this moment of time with the possibility of transformation if you set up the right conditions for it to occur and I could go on but I'm not I'll just open it for a few minutes for some questions, if there's any, or comments. They don't have to be questions, by the way. Don't expect, I don't expect them to be questions. No? Oh, well, if it was that easy, we can go home. <laughs> It's a wise to back off from what you're doing because it generally shows you're trying too hard. Sometimes, say for example, if you're using the breath as the meditation and you are starting to develop a headache or developing tension, for example, you'll notice it actually around neck and shoulders often. Um, It's as well, if you notice that happening, just to stop concentrating on the breath. Just let the mind go. Just watch the stream of whatever is occurring without any particular focus at that time. When you feel the tension start to dissipate a little bit, then you can bring yourself back to it. So in other words, you just back off for a little while, and you find often the tension will dissipate, uh, and you can just watch the mind stream itself, 
That's all. No? Are there other comments or questions? Okay, and that... Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not sure if this is a question or a comment, but it's, um, it's something that I've learned through the, the teachings of Buddhism, but um, the renunciation of um, attachment to new material objects, I can sort of understand and come to terms with and um, I think I've been, or I've learned something in that. But the um, learning to not be attached to people is a very difficult thing. Mm, I think it is a difficult thing. Let me get clear about that um, in response to what you just said, because I think it is a very important <coughs> issue. And I was talking with one of the groups, I can't remember which group it was, that because we were operate in English particularly under what I call a, a bipolar language system, and what I mean by that is, is that when I say, for example, that I'm letting go of attachment, that suddenly we end up in detachment. Now, literally, um, that might be the case, but it's how we hear that word detachment. For me, it's a very cold word. I don't know how it is for others. You know, I'll leave you to judge. Detachment for me is a very cold word. It almost smacks of standing at the sidelines of life, kind of looking in, in a very cold, dispassionate fashion. And I actually don't think that's what the teachings of Buddhism are about. (laughs) Almost as an oxymoron, I think it's the opposite of of detachment. Instead of attachment, what we get is correct engagement, real engagement. Because attachment is actually a false engagement with what is. And often I think that when we hear the word detachment, um, there is an implication, I don't know again if it has this connotation for you, but it often does for me, um, almost a connotation of not caring any longer. And again, I think that's the opposite of what Buddhist thought is about. Because in the state of non-attachment, and I'd use that word, non-attachment, actually there is a great caring there is a great caring for others because it's a movement out of egotism and that is where attachment arises because actually attachment is actually about me ultimately. It's about how you are, if it's another person for example which is what you're talking about it's actually about how you are for me and the attachment is in a sense a skewed relationship So to actually come into a real relationship of engagement but non-attachment is to come into a relationship of care and love for another, which isn't wholly about me being at the centre of that. So my response to that is just to say, well, yes, I agree with you, but it's slightly different in relationship to people because it's not meaning I don't care. It actually sometimes means I care so much I can let you go. Because that's what real caring is about. What about responsibility when you don't actually care about duty and responsibility given you (laughs) do (laughs) come? 
Duty and responsibility. Well, if you have duties and responsibilities, then you have to fulfil them. Um, it's how to fulfil them without dukkering. <laughs> That's the big issue. Um, if, for example, those duties and responsibilities give rise to, often what they do, things like resentment, then you're, as a consequence, going to dukkha about it. It's how to make the movement into those duties and responsibilities, in a sense, as part of the path. And I don't want to kind of over-idealise that. But in a sense, making those duties and responsibilities part of practice. If you do have them and you can't avoid them, you can't evade them, then you've got to find a way, in a sense, of not creating dukkha out of them, but making them part and parcel of real engagement again. Yeah. And that's a difficult one. It's a very, very difficult Because most, most of us have duties and responsibilities of some form or another. And this is not about moving into the opposite of irresponsibility. In fact, interestingly enough, in the original monastic code, uh, you couldn't just become a monk and abandon your family. If you had children who needed to be brought up um, and required you to earn money for them, you couldn't just abandon your responsibilities. In fact, there was lots of um, caveats as to the types of people that couldn't um, join the monastic order. The other one was evading debt. <laughs> you couldn't you know, join the monastic order if you were trying to avoid your creditors. <laughs> yeah, and these are, in a sense, all bringing us back to that if you have responsibilities, then you need to fulfil them. Um, you need to find a way, in a sense, of making those the practice. Um, not always easy. I, and I wouldn't want to pretend it is, but it's actually how you do that turn it into the practice itself. And part of that might be by moving into a wholehearted recognition of what is required, a different form of responsiveness, a looking beyond the resentments and the irritations and the things that normally arise for us in those situations. In a way, it becomes almost like reframing the whole situation so that it doesn't just become a burden to us but actually becomes something which is, in a way, on the path to liberation. Again, I don't want to over-idealise that, but it can so easily become that if we reframe it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.